listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad. Yourself? I'm good, man. I was, I've been giving thought to podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts outside of uh, recording this podcast with you. And I'm wondering, what is your favorite podcast other than Identity at the Center, of course? <laughs> uh, I'll be honest. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. And I barely listen to this show because, one, I record it. <laughs> right? So I'm here. I'm present for the conversation. I know what happened. Uh, and then I edit it, which means I'm usually listening to the show like three to four times. So when I do listen to a podcast, and there's only a couple that I listen to right now with any type of regularity, it would be Conan O'Brien needs a friend. And it's usually something around, you know, comedy and him talking to folks and, you know, just being Conan O'Brien himself. And then the other one that I like is I'm a big fan of Anthony Jeselnik. So Anthony Jeselnik and um, Greg Rosenthal have a comedy podcast slash whatever podcast, whatever you call it, called uh, the Jeselnik and Rosenthal Vanity Project, JRVP. So I listen to that, um, you know, with with some regularity every at least every couple of weeks or so. What are you listening to? Well, I'm a big fan of the uh, the Risky Business podcast with Patrick Gray, I think. You know, if you're a nerd in this space, you've got to you've got to tune into that. Um, it comes out every Tuesday. Uh, that's a fantastic one where they just pretty much talk about uh, the infosec headlines, mostly about companies that have gotten ransomware recently. And then, of course, I'm a huge baseball nut, so um, I listen to the Baseball America podcast. I listen to one called Thirty with Murdy. Murdy being a um, a Yankees broadcaster. Um, there's some other identity and access management podcasts I like to listen to, like the Hybrid Identity uh, Protection podcast. Um, shoot, there's a few others. Uh, there's one that was put out by um, the CISO over at Microsoft called um, Security Unlocked. And then there are a bunch that are put out by NPR, which are you know, really radio shows that have become podcasts as well, like um, This American Life, Freakonomics, um, Hidden Brain. So those are just, oh, and Marketplace, of course. I mean, those are, I don't listen to all of them every week, but that's kind of my listening list. That's a pretty healthy list. I mean, for someone who doesn't listen to podcasts, you just named off like 700 different shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm hoping that somebody can find a nugget there. And uh, But I definitely recommend the, the Risky Business Podcast. And anybody who's listening to us on a regular basis also should be tuning into that. Right on. So uh, why don't we change this podcast over to maybe talking some identity um, I think, you know, as we're kind of talking with our guests that I'll introduce here in a second, um, you know, we were kind of looking at ideas on, on where do we take this episode, and we settled on the past, present, and future of strong authentication, which I think is an amazing title, if, uh, if we do say so ourselves. And uh, the person who helped us come up with that title, his name is Kurt Johnson. He's the Vice President of Strategy and Business Development at Beyond Identity, and want to welcome you to the show, Kurt. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Jeff. Jim, great to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. Um, so uh, the company that you work for, Beyond Identity, beyondidentity.com, um, it really plays in the strong auth game. So I'm really excited that you're here to kind of help us understand, you know, what is strong auth? What does it mean? And maybe, you know, helping us understand what are the differences maybe even in the space, because I think there are, there are some things to, to kind of consider on that. Uh, but as this is the first time on our show, um, we like to find out our guest origin stories when it comes to identity and infosec. So maybe you can kind of recap, uh, you know, your your career from from uh, from our perspective at the identity level. Uh, how did you get into the identity space? Is it something that you chose, or did it choose you? Oh, it definitely chose me. It was a bit of an accident and a bit of an evolution at the same time because I started in identity before we were even calling it identity management. I actually spent years as an industry analyst. I was working with a company called Metagroup that's now part of Gartner. And one of the areas that I was covering was the whole IT service management and help desk. And so I was getting calls from clients all the time around 
what could we be doing to reduce the number one call to my help desk, which was password resets? And this company, Curion, was on my radar as an early stage startup who was doing self-service password reset. So I was digging into them to see if this was real and really became focused on the whole self-service initiatives and how do you reduce the burden and pain for these poor help desk agents and people. And as I was kind of getting deeper in this and watching Curion kind of just launch itself from its early beginnings, it kind of hit me as well that if I kept being an analyst, I probably would be one the rest of my life. And I was kind of tired of being the Roger Ebert and wanted to be a Steven Spielberg, get my hands dirty on building. So I actually joined Curion right when they were about 12 people. And as we started to evolve from password resets and talking to help desk people about this great tool that could reduce their calls, as we were getting deeper into the sales cycle, the security people and CISOs in particular going, you're doing what with passwords? So uh, tell me a little bit more about this because nobody's touching that. And so as we realized we had to shift our sales strategy to really appeal to the security side and show this as a better way of doing it than kind of people writing sticky notes and all of that. And we were looking at automating other tasks and doing this hitting the joiners, movers, levers. So built one of the first provisioning systems. So we were doing all of this provisioning and identity governance and administration before we were calling it. And then finally, we started to see identity management emerge. And that's where we really started branding around the term identity management. When the regulations and governance came along around who had access to what, we had this great system that was setting them up, modifying them and turning them off that we now had a basis of a governance solution before we were calling it identity governance and administration. So I spent 15 plus years at Curion watching it from its early stages. We ended up selling it to a PE company and was involved in some tuck-in acquisitions and actually merging it with uh, core security, which was time for me to leave after that amount of time. And I actually went over to a fintech company, early stage five-person company doing electronic payments. And we were doing great efficiencies and reducing cost and pain, but I realized I really missed security. I, I missed dealing with companies that were solving real problems that, you know, they were coming under attack and how could you help their businesses keep going that after we sold this fintech company after a couple of years, I immediately went right back into security and joined an email security company focused on cloud email security and anti-phishing, but realized I was missing the identity side of the house as well. And it was great to be back to security, but I always kept my eyes open and what was going on with the identity world. And I think it was Ian Glazer that said it to me one time. He said, you know, identity is like the mafia. You can leave, but you really can't. <laughs> you, know, you think you'll leave, but it brings you right back. And I got this call about this company in stealth mode that was looking to do some really interesting things around eliminating passwords. And I had to listen. And uh, it was pre-revenue. So to be part of a stealth company sounded incredibly intriguing. Um, the co-founders are Jim Clark and TJ Jermaluk. And Jim and TJ just have this incredible history of starting companies and, and building them into uh, absolute name brands like Silicon Graphics and Netscape and at-home networks and WebMD. And to be part of so working with alongside them to start this company, and then frankly, to get back into identity really kind of drew me in. So came back in around January of 2020. And, uh, you know, I'm back. So <laughs> I feel like somewhere out there, there's like this um, um, identity boogeyman, and they like left the identity horse head in your bed. <laughs> so when you thought you were you were out, you know, all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, Oh, no, I'm back in, I'm back into security, never mind. Um, and this is how we know each other. So we actually go back, you know, I, this makes me feel old, like 15 years or so, because I was actually a customer of Curry on at one point. Um, and, I, you know, I'm absolutely one of those people who's like, all right, we're having trouble with passwords, right? And this is probably like the early 2000s. And Curry is one of the companies we reach out to and we ended up kind of, you know, going with going with them and helping us with a variety of different things. So we kind of go back from that perspective. So it's always fascinating to kind of think about where uh, where you might be, you know, decades later and the relationships that get made. And, you know, this is why I think you never burn bridges, <laughs> right? And True. you try to put yourself off in a, into a professional uh, mode so that, because uh, you never know what's going to happen. And especially I feel like in the identity space, it's such a tight-knit group where, you know, we see a lot of people who move from organization to organization, but, um, you know, it's always ever expanding. But there's a lot of familiar faces that you'll see over time, you know, the longer you stick in the business. So it's always great to, to see folks from Corian and, or well, I should say the, the band formerly known as Corian. <laughs> uh, right. Someone we were still yeah. with today. 
I was at Identiverse a few weeks back and uh, it was like old home week, you know, just seeing all these (laughs) old faces, different companies perhaps, but yeah, it really is. And it's been interesting to watch too, as identity and has really become far more prevalent in security in the early days. It was kind of like, uh, you felt like the outsider, but now it's like we're sitting at the cool kids table in the cafeteria. So. Darn straight. I love it. So I've been hearing that the password's been dead for for years now. I think like Bill Gates said like a decade ago it was dead and we keep hearing every year that it's dead. And I think this is really kind of where we're heading now, right? Is this really, it's not dead. It's really the strong authentication play. So when we talk about the past, present and future of authentication, it probably makes sense to kind of start with the past and understanding, you know, where have we been? And we all know passwords suck. Um, where are we now? And then what's next, right? Maybe maybe can kind of take us through that journey a little bit here to kind of level set the conversation for folks who are listening. Yeah, it's amazing to think it was kind of in the early 1960s that passwords were first introduced at MIT and working within kind of these data center environments. And they served a purpose to enable more controls and security around access. Uh, but then when we hit the 1980s, and I said our co-founders, Jim Clark and TJ Jermaluk, you know, Jim was the co-founder of Netscape, and Jim was the, uh, or Jim was the founder of Netscape, and TJ, the um, CEO founder of At Home Networks, which was the first broadband provider to the home. And the two of them play a large part on making the internet accessible to, like, everybody, and passwords just exponentially grew and proliferated to the hundreds of thousands, even millions. So by the time the 90s came along, that's where the focus was all on, well, we have to make them harder and longer and higher entropy to make them, you know, rotate them more frequently and expire because as more passwords came, more password theft came. So yeah, you really look at passwords and you talk about how much they suck. I mean, they suck for just about everybody except for the attackers, right? <laughs> Cause, because you don't have to break in anymore. You can just log in and, and with password reuse and misuse and getting stolen left and right. I mean, we've really just created this environment where the vulnerability and risk is greater than ever before. And so then we've kind of moved into the band-aids. So we created password managers. So you could at least have one place to go and let them recycle and move your passwords. But how did you access a password manager? Well, with the username and password. So now the compromise could open the door to even more attacks. So along came our good friends, multi-factor authentication and two-factor authentication, which the idea was that this plurality of security measures could hopefully increase the overall security. But really what we saw was a significant increase in friction for the end user waiting for a code or needing a second device or you know, I, on my phone, I had a f- have a folder prior to Beyond Identity with a bunch of multi-factor authentication applications. So where do I use Authy? Where do I use Microsoft Authenticator? I have to use Salesforce Authenticator over here. So, you know, it's no doubt we've seen the adoption of MFA be so low. I think 451, the research company says around 50% adoption. Uh, IDC told us it was closer to 30% in their eyes, which is significantly less than any other security functionality like firewalls or intrusion detection or even endpoint, which is hitting 90% plus. And, And why is that? I mean, the friction and experience for end users, as I said, is painful. And they're also complex and expensive to deploy. So even where you see they're deployed, it's often just for a subset of users or, um, the capabilities, you know, maybe just for remote access, maybe just for our privilege. So I I think as we've created this environment where we're putting more and more of these multi-factors, it's it's kind of where we are today. This this world of whack-a-mole has to stop, where the overwhelming majority of attacks are still based on stolen and misused credentials. I think the World Economic Forum said over 80%, and Verizon is somewhere over 60%, but name your number, it's a lot, right? And and as I said, attackers don't need to break in, they just log in. And if this key vulnerability of this credential is being used, as a matter of fact, valid credential misuse is at the source of these attacks. So it is real passwords that are getting stolen and misused and guessed. And, you know, it it can't continue. You know, the, the reality is we're as vulnerable as we've ever before. So with traditional MFA, you know, the password's still there. It still exists as part of that equation. 
And we've created this Band-Aid to deal with what's become an open wound in, in organizations. And, you know, maybe you don't use the password. You're using a magic link or something else or an SMS. But now these are coming under attack. So are, are they more secure? Sure. But does it really slam the door on credential attacks? Not really. And as a matter of fact, it's opened the door to other kinds of attacks. So, you know, we have we moved to SMS and then also on SIM card swapping took place. We have email links, but email gets compromised. We had the attackers doing these push attacks where if you hit the organization which with enough notifications and pushes with an OTP, somebody's going to click, yes, that's me. So we've done all this and create greater user friction than ever before. Clearly, we know we have to change, right? And, and so that's why I think where we are today, we're seeing the rise in early passwordless initiatives. You know, there's the FIDO Alliance. There's a lot of things that are trying to bypass the password. And I think we all have to agree the password has to go, which is creating rise in these new approaches. But at the same time, really, are we eliminating passwords or are we just kind of making them, you know, less part of the equation? So today, you know, you start to hear more, you know, we've been talking about identity as the new perimeter for a while now. Can't really call it the new perimeter anymore because we've been talking about it long enough that that statement's even become commonplace too. But if you think about it, I believe that even the notion of a perimeter is, is wrong. It's the idea that things inside we trust while those outside we do not. And authentic, I heard this used, I think, by uh, 451 Research as well, that authentications is like a bouncer at a nightclub. But once you get past the door, you could do whatever you want inside the club. So it really is forming to, you know, that's where we are. Where do we need to get to? And, and that's really leads to what's next and what does this ideal solution look like, which was really behind the beginnings of our company. You know, when we started to look to form beyond identity, we looked out in this environment and all the, the pain and the friction for end users, but also the vulnerability for organizations. And when we looked at what does modern authentication look like? We know it had to eliminate passwords. We know you have to positively validate the users and the devices they're on. You need to make it easy for users to gain access and not create friction in that process, while at the same time reducing IT and support costs. And that kind of leads to kind of the beginnings and the thoughts around things like zero trust and really kind of where we are. You know, bottom line, regardless of who you are, where you are, what device you're on, what you're doing, you should be going through an identity system to authenticate and authorize what you're doing. But I think it needs to move more to like a toll booth rather than a toll bridge, which is where we are today. You know, push everyone through a VPN, check the traffic, check the devices. It's not wrong, but it's very hard, very expensive. And you don't have to do that to really get a good understanding of who the person is and the device they're on and what they're trying to do to create stronger authentication. So we need to move to an environment without passwords, making it easier. And the big part is that it's not a one and done. It needs to be continuous. You can't just look once and let that person in, but you need to be kind of looking at what's going on on a continuous basis with the ability to take action and deny that authentication. So, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, where we're going and, you know, the, the bottom line is you can't have zero trust if you still have a password. And if you do, you're already starting with a fail. Yeah, I think that the um, the password's an obvious weakness, right? I mean, we used to call it a cottage industry to get these credentials and sell them on the dark web. I was reading an article prior to us starting this recording. It was a headline article on dark reading. The average cost to buy access to a compromised company, $1,000. So that's not even a cottage industry, right? That's a thrift store. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's Walmart, you know, or a, a blue light special for going out and getting access. And included in that is, you know, $1,000 gets you credential to a VPN or to RDP. So if you're not at least using multi-factor, and we've said this a million times on the show, you need... You absolutely need to be using multi-factor, but, you know, to kind of play on what Kurt was talking about is, um, you know, with that zero trust methodology or mindset, it's, you know, everything's got to be covered. You can't, and you can't just think about it from your external points of entry. Um, but, you know, Kurt, I, I think you're, you know, you gave a, a really good overview about the past, present, and future. 
I think the future is zero trust. Zero trust is also right now. Um, but you know, I think, and I think if you're listening to this show, you probably already are like, okay, guys, yes, <laughs> you you've beat this into us. We know the password sucks, right? That's not a it's not a strong enough control in this day and age. Um, and I think everybody would say, if I could flip a switch and get rid of the password, I would do it. Um, but it's it, it's hard, right? Or maybe you're going to tell me it's not hard, but I'm thinking, okay, I've got an enterprise. I've got hundreds of systems. I've got different entry points. I've got some new technology. I've got some legacy. I've got cloud applications. Um, do I need to be passwordless or do I need less passwords? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's, I saw a survey um, that said that the average business user has 191 passwords. And I, I was challenging that on a roadshow we were doing with a, a CISO event. And all of them started talking up going, oh, yeah, I looked at my password manager and I've got 300 or I've got 290. And I think some estimates, there's over 300 billion passwords. So passwords have... Truly, I mean, this day and age kind of launching a company during a pandemic, which wasn't really part of our original playbook, put a lot of things in perspective. But I think the rough analogy is that passwords are a virus. You know, they have spread like crazy and 300 billion of them out there. You can't just wipe them out overnight. But at the same time, we need to, you know, we need the herd immunity. here. We need people to be taking the steps to the approaches on what you can really do. And, and I think that's where the term passwordless and the industry has a number of different kind of players approaching this. And yeah, we really are trying to distinguish between passwordless as one word versus two words or password dash less. And that passwordless isn't just avoiding the use of a password. You know, it, it, the term is meaning a broad set of things, but we're not trying to just eliminate it from the end user side. I mean, the whole definition of a password is part of shared secrets, right? And shared secrets is that one person and the other side know it. So if the individual knows it and it matches what's sitting in the database of a system or a directory, then we will bless that. But that gives you the opportunity of tacking either side. So if you just kind of eliminate it from the end user, it still exists out there. It's still something that can be stolen. They can get at it. They can use it for another account where it's being reused. And even if you make a more difficult password, that can still be entered in a phishing attack as well. So I think it's important where, where we're talking about this, that the opportunity and the capability to truly eliminating the password does exist. But you really want to look at what are you replacing it with. And if you can look inside the architecture and see that a password still exists anywhere, could you real, you know, or, or that's still a vulnerability or, or did you replace it with something such as asymmetric cryptography or public keys and binding them to the device and carrying that with your identity? I, I think this was our thinking behind starting Beyond Identity in the first place. It, it, it's about eliminating the password, but finding that device and identity, leveraging existing proven technology around asymmetric cryptography and digital certificates, but do so in a way that you can make this government level security available for the masses and make it easy to deploy, which has not traditionally been the experience of many who've dealt with PKI or digital certificates. But that capability does exist. We need to really look at how we can apply that. Part of it was when we even launched our solution, we give the passwordless authenticator away for free because that's just piece of the equation. Let's do our best that we can actually help eliminate the passwords out there and really eliminate them from the system. But with 300 billion of them out there, we know that's going to be a pretty big task and take some time. So I think there's a lot of different kind of definitions around passwordless and especially when it comes to kind of the, the different vendors that are out there, right? So you're, you're one of several that, that at least that I know of, and I'm sure there are others that I, that I don't know of when it comes to strong authentication and trying to remove the password. Is there a common approach that vendors in this space kind of look at as far as, okay, is it really eliminating the password or is it obfuscating the password somewhere behind some sort of hidden layer that it still exists, but maybe you're just not, a, you know, not aware that it's there. Um, how do, I guess, as an industry perspective, how are passwordless companies coming at it? Because then I think what I'd like to talk about next would be 
okay, so, you know, why are you special, <laughs> right? What, what's the difference in the way that you guys are approaching it? Yeah, I think uh, it's part of the concern. I mean, obviously, because passwords are so horrendous, the idea of passwordless is a catchy phrase. It, it's, I hate to say buzzword, but that's truly kind of what it's becoming. And I think it's it makes it challenging for those looking at potential solutions to really distinguish between them because there is a lot that an organization has to do to really understand their goals and initiatives, but also what the capabilities, because there are a bunch of passwordless technologies, which I would just say are ways of bypassing them and using something instead of a password, but that password absolutely still exists. And, you you know, Magic Links, SMS, all of those are ways of kind of avoiding a password. I, I look at my banking application that I use on my iPhone. I use Face ID to get into it, but there's still a password there. All it's really in the password is even taking place in the uh, authentication sequence that's starting with Face ID. So that's where I was saying before, we really have to look at the just making it less visible or less used by the end user versus absolutely eliminating it altogether. I mean, part of even the naming of our company Beyond Identity was like, it has to go beyond just the passwordless angle. But since a lot of it is just to bypass it from the user experience, that's where I was saying, you really have to look at, into the architecture and can we truly eliminate it? And that's been our goal is that we really want to eliminate the passwords and all the risks and vulnerabilities that go with it but doing so in a way that makes a true secure authentication capability, make that government level security available to the masses. And that was when we were kind of looking at the market, you know, it, when we first went out there, we had a lot of debate to not even call ourselves passwordless because we didn't want to be just lumped in with a bunch of kind of convenience technologies for end users. Yes, eliminating friction for the end user and improving the experience was absolutely paramount to what we were trying to do. But the purpose and the goal was really to create a security solution and really bring that to the realm of identity, not just to kind of change it in the sequence for the end users. So I, I really think that's, you have to take a look at that from an architectural standpoint. Are we really eliminating them? Or are we just kind of not making the end user use them as often? So I think that's really interesting because, you know, I, I see a lot of these technologies kind of, you know, come across our, at least my view of it and, you know, asking us to look at it and provide thoughts, et cetera. And that's one of the first questions I usually ask is, okay, so where's the password, right? Because usually there is still a password somewhere. So if I'm listening and hearing what you're saying, it's you're actually eliminating the password. There is no password in play, which immediately piques my interest. So I guess help me understand, uh, you know, we definitely, you know, try not to do commercials for any specific product. But I think this is an important distinction here where I'd like to understand the, the approach that you guys take from a product perspective when it comes to beyond identity and going truly passwordless. How do you do that? Yeah. So really what we did was we we took a look out there and um, really looked at how could we take battle-tested proven technology and extend that down to the end user and their device in the, in the authentication experience. So coming back from, you know, our founders with Jim, when he founded Netscape, that was the first creation of SSL, you know, the little lock in the browser. Tahir Algamal, who's the father of SSL, sits on our advisory board, uh, had been working with Jim back in that day, as is Marty Hellman of Diffie-Hellman fame. And when you really looked at these core technologies that are in place, and over the last couple decades, really haven't changed that much. SSL is now TLS encryption, but still using X509 certificates. And that is how all, I mean, it, it, that's what secures trillions of dollars of transactions every day on the web. That kind of in the old way, we had the user have a password to access these machines, but the machines use certificates to interact with each other or technically private keys verified through certificates to validate that when you made a purchase on Amazon with PayPal, that it was really PayPal on the other end that Amazon was communicating with. And so we looked at taking that technology and really just extending that down to pull the end user and their device into that chain of trust. And that what we recognized was that, you know, kind of back in the old days, it was kind of a thankless task for anybody to want to be a certificate authority for every end user out there. And, and, and frankly, there was no place or nothing to do with a, a private key. But 
come today where you now have these devices that have the TPMs and secure enclaves, which provide a perfect and secure way of housing that private key. And we've created this notion of a personal certificate authority where every end user could be their own CA without knowing what a CA is or even does. And so we're not reinventing any cryptographic protocols or algorithms. We're using these time-tested proven capabilities to pull that end user and the device into the equation. And the process is that the end user gets the beyond identity authenticator on their device. They register that initial profile. And basically what you've done is created a certificate chain where the identity is the root of that chain and the devices are just different links on that. So what that does is allow the end user to extend that chain with various devices and no one device is dependent on the other. So unlike traditional PKI where you remove one node and all the children go along with it, this allows you to prune that tree and extend that chain. You lose one phone, you can use any other device to extend that and create an uh, extension of the certificate chain on a new device without calling IT help desks or administrators. And so being on that device offers a lot of interesting aspects. You know, we, we can actually interact with that device to assess the trust of the device at the point of login. And by being on the device, it can speak to the security of the device itself when that end user is logging on. You know, by anchoring the key in the hardware, you eliminate the mobility of that key um, as a credential. It can't leave the device. It can't be ported from that device. We disrupt the lateral movement or um, disrupting valid uh, credential misuse by housing it in that secure TPM. But recognizing one of the benefits of passwords was the portability that you can be used from any device and still have that happen. We brought all of that down to the beyond identity solution. So leveraging standards like X509 and TLS, creating a notion of a personal certificate authority, making it easy for the device itself to authenticate. And thus, it's the analogy is it's like airport security. You have to show an ID so we know it's really Jeff or it's really Jim. We then still have to go through the, um, uh, the metal detectors. Do the same thing with authentication. Make sure it's you, make sure it's your device, but make sure that device is trustworthy at the point of authentication. So Kurt, at a conceptual level, and, and some of this PKI stuff, uh, quite frankly, goes a little bit over my head. Uh, so it is definitely a very technical conversation, right? But at a conceptual level, you mentioned the binding of a device. So how does the binding of a device to a human improve or strengthen that authentication experience? Yeah, when you really look at it, that the device itself, as opposed to just being familiar, like, oh, I've seen Kurt use this device before, or it's part of a database, the strength of actually binding an identity and a device together uh, in my opinion, it kind of becomes a building block of, of zero trust. You know, you, you verify the identity, you actually bind it to the device that it's trying to access. And then that can be transmitted and carried with you throughout the journey of the transactions. If you look at most attacks today, they're really hitting on those two factors, right? They're either trying to compromise the identity and pretend they are somebody they are not really through stolen passwords or other even attacks on MFA, or they're going after the device itself, whether that could be malware or, you know, laying ransomware down through that. So most zero trust initiatives that we've started today are kind of looking at the various components as single threaded indicators of risk, you know, is this Kurt, but what if Kurt's trying to access from a computer in the library that's covered in malware and don't know who's been used it before, or it's my kid's laptop with TikTok and everything else on it and don't know if that thing's been compromised. So you also have often seen a lot of organizations, especially as we went to the whole work from home through this pandemic, really focus on mobile device management, MDM, or endpoint detection and response EDR tools because they needed more visibility into those devices and what was coming in or pushing them through the VPN. But many of those are very intrusive technologies that go beyond and, and enable you to really see a lot of the information and data on those devices. 
I mean, frankly, putting cameras in dressing rooms can cut down on shoplifting, right? But do we really want to have that as a, a mechanism for security? Some people feel the same way about these. I don't want this on my uh, personal device. So, you know, from our perspective, it was like, let's bring these factors together and really completely change the notion of having just looking at the security posture. Is disk encryption on? Is firewall enabled? Is it a personal device or a corporate device? Is it been jailbroken? Is it got malware running on it? But bringing that at the point of authentication. So that's why I was saying it's like the airport analogy. I know it's me. I also know it's my bag and I'm gonna screen that bag, but unlike airport security, I want it to be done without friction. So from an end user, launch an app. This runs in the background, making sure it passes all that, but we can actually, at the point of authenticating, verify that only a laptop with disk encryption enabled can access patient data. And if it's a personal device, maybe it just should get office suite or email, but I want it to be a corporate device, a corporate managed device that has more of this secured lockdown capability before accessing AWS or uh, you know GitHub or any other more sensitive applications. That's really is kind of where we need to evolve this to. And that's what we feel when we can really kind of make those one and bind those together. It's a lot different than just looking at them as individual statistics. And then you can look at things like the location and the network. You know, if I know it's Kurt's device and it's trustworthy at the point of authentication, do I really care if it's coming from a Starbucks that I haven't seen before because I have good high assurance? And let's look at the rest of the indicators from like a behavioral analytics standpoint. So what somebody's doing. Um, is it a risky action? Is it look atypical than what they do? Then yeah, let's let them re-verify or let them step up the authentication. So I, I do believe there's all the aspects of kind of really looking through the broad zero trust, but this notion of really kind of bringing that identity and the device together as one, we just feel brings such a higher level of assurance that then doing that and authenticating with the asymmetric cryptography and certificates and not a password, the end user doesn't even know what's happening behind there. You bring It's one of the rare times we can bring higher level security and better user experience at the same time. I feel like this is an area that couldn't exist you know, a decade ago. I feel like this is an area where the modern advances in technology and the you know, the sheer power of computing, right, that you have at your fingertips these days, right? Your, your phone might be the most powerful device you have, you know, in your, in your entire life, right? It might be stronger than even your computer. And when we start talking about cryptography and being able to act as, you know, cert certificate authorities, like this is, this is the type of stuff you weren't going to see on your old, you know, BlackBerry <laughs> or your old Windows phone or things like that. And, you know, I think this is where the zero trust part comes in as well, right? We're talking a lot, a lot of things you just described are, you know, typically what I see like under conditional or adaptive authentication rules, right? Taking a bunch of different signals and then figuring out what do you want to do with that information, right? Is it safe? Do you re, you know, do you meet the, the, the level of assurance that you want? And maybe there's different levels of assurance. Yeah, if I'm trying to get to the cafeteria menu, who cares, right? But let it be wide open. But if I'm trying to get to the secret sauce for or, or the, you know, the recipe for KFC chicken, right, maybe there's a few uh, a few more hoops I need to jump through before to get to that. So I think it's interesting that I feel like that the, the the advances in the technology space have definitely enabled this because I go back to the original statement. I said, I was like, well, Bill Gates said the password was dead like 10 years ago, but I don't think it really could have been. I think what he meant was, you know, the password is really hidden behind something else, right? Biometrics, you know, whatever it may be. So I think that's that's kind of where I've seen the industry go. But I'm also a little bit of a skeptic. So, you know, I hear all this cool stuff. I want to go passwordless. But I also hear from a lot of different vendors. And I think this is where the distinction comes in, too. So, you know, Microsoft, you know, touts passwordless through Windows Hello. You know, Apple has it through, uh, you know, the various mechanisms of Touch ID and Face ID. And if I'm a skeptical CISO, you know, I guess the question that I'm going to ask is, okay, so what is the value proposition here? Um, why do I need an add-on authentication product like passwordless when Microsoft or Okta or Ping or whoever, right, is telling me they already have this as part of their solution? Um, is that something that you can kind of help me understand that context? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think obviously with, 
the risk and vulnerability of passwords. This is an industry-wide movement to reduce that risk as much as we can. And everybody kind of trying to get into to help support that is a good thing. Though that's where I was saying it's, it, but it goes beyond that. You know, just the elimination of passwords, it, it's a critical component to it. But this notion of zero trust and device provenance and security posture are critical aspects that take that beyond just kind of an authentication experience. And, and I think that's kind of been our different approach from a lot of the philosophy that you shouldn't have to have to pick up a second device in order to log in. And even that it does avoid a password. Yeah, that's great. But we can bring that even one step further in our, our goals and initiatives out there as an industry. You know, Being on that device gives the additional benefit of a better user experience. And you're right. Before we had TPMs and enclaves of these devices, that really wasn't possible or as secure, but take it, we, we saw this, you know, with, with Apple back in the tragedy of the San Bernardino shootings, they wanted to get access to the pin code to get into that iPhone. And Apple was like, we can't do that. So the device security built in, taking that, but then kind of extending that through um, broader means was really kind of what we felt was where the industry needed to move to. So yeah, you, there are, you know, free features you can get with a lot of these vendors. And in my belief, a free feature can be a lot like a free puppy and really understand a lot of them require MDM or EDR to be in that equation to give the device security. Or you have to set up your own certificate management system or they'll do it for you, which comes at a cost. And that's not easy. So really kind of where our thinking and the goal was, was that, yeah, you can leverage the enclaves and TPMs to really enable the private key. But the notion of a personal certificate authority, how can an end user do this without knowing they're doing it is a critical ingredient. So I think as customers of these vendors, it's great to see what kind of features they have. But the reason we felt that we could create a company and create a premium offering is it's 100% focused on the delivery of the most secure authentication experience possible. Stop credential-based attacks right in their uh, tracks, but make it a better experience for the end user. So, and don't do this just for the specific systems of that vendor, but in a hybrid environment. And, and, and our philosophy was that the approach we're taking, binding identity and the security posture of that device, bringing that at the point of authentication, our first foray was doing this for the workforce. And we didn't want to replace the identity providers. We made it so we could integrate directly into Okta, Ping, ForgeRock, Microsoft, and working just as a delegated identity provider to interact with that system, which means it doesn't disrupt. You don't have to change what you've done in those systems. You don't have to configure APIs to make this work. Work with that environment. Then we took it through to customers as well and customer logins through interaction with Siam or even an SDK that can be embedded into the app so we can provide this secure, easy form of authentication, frictionless authentication for customers and end users. So, so you're bringing up some, some really good um, meaty topics, which I think are the things that, you know, our listeners, the IAM practitioners, those are the people who are evaluating and procuring and then having to deploy technologies like passwordless in their environment. And so we had Martin Kupinga on the podcast last week, and we talked about the POC process. What's the right way to conduct a POC? It's not just to take something like the leadership um, compass or the magic quadrant and just take the solution that's, you know, ranked the highest in that analysis. It's Really, you know, that can be a guide, right? That can be a data point, uh, but you need to conduct some kind of proof of concept. And so what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, I'm sure in your role, you've been involved with a lot of proof of concepts where uh, companies are evaluating passwordless. And what's your takeaway on, you know, some of the best ways to do that? What have you, where have you seen where uh, a customer's just doing it right? They are. They're, they're really evaluating passwordless in the right way. They're asking the right questions, whatever, uh, versus well, what's the wrong way to do it? Yeah, I think part of it's really going in to understand what your goals and initiatives are. We were talking about this before. Passwordless means so many different things that 
you're not going to find a laundry list of like RFP responses or checkbox items because if the systems are meant for very different things, one just to do multi-factor authentication, one to provide a full secure authentication experience, it really is going into it with your eyes open to what are you really trying to accomplish here? And a belief that our goal is to really truly eliminate that password is really going to provide the better long-term experience, really understanding where does that occur and can that occur? So going into it, there's there's two sides to this. You know, we want to improve the security. We also want to reduce the user uh, friction and make that a good experience. And those have to be critical components of the proof of concept. And you need to just test this. What does it take to deploy this solution? Do you have to make configuration changes to your systems or API changes to the applications that you're authenticating to? How easy can it get stood up? We we challenge them to time us from the point we start to the point we finish and see how quickly we can actually integrate into that system and not cause any disruption to your current environment. But also with the policy itself, as I mentioned, bringing that device security into it is something very unique that most solutions aren't doing. Is that something important to you? And how do you want that to occur? What policy makes sense? Really thinking through your organization on where do we want to be more restrictive versus where do we want to be more open with that access? As well, and the most important piece is testing this with end users. And I say probably the most uncomfortable or awkward POCs are where only the IT people are testing it and it's the security people testing it. It's like, put it in front of your end users. Who are the people who are your challenging, call the help desk a bunch and see how easy it is for them. Because when you change the user experience, especially at the point of authentication, you're going to have it, that's change behavior. That that's impact. And so even when it's easier, it, it can also be somewhat disruptive. We we actually saw this through kind of some of the user experience testing we were doing early on. Because the whole notion and idea is that you launch the application and the redirect and the authentication and the pri the public key gets issued, signing it's a private key. None of that's visible to the end user. They don't have to pick up our app or pick up a second device. So they were opening the app and all they were knowing is they were in and they never entered a password. And so they're calling saying, hey, something's wrong here. Somebody's in my account. And so we actually had to create some graphics showing that something's happening behind the scenes here. It's doing something. So, you know, oh, OK, I, I feel comfortable that was authentic. We almost brought it too far. So really understanding that user experience is just a critical piece and testing this with the right users. We love the POCs because we feel once we take the password away from an end user, it's going to be real hard to give it back if they don't want to move forward. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, absolutely. And that's, I think, a, a step that organizations need to do more is organizational change management, really thinking about the impact, the customer experience that they're creating, whether even for internal users. I remember when I first got into IAM, the mindset was, okay, what is the difference between CIM and IAM? Well, CIM, you have to have a really good user experience, but for employees, who gives a hoot? I think that mindset is shifting a lot because I think tools are better now, right? And that becomes a differentiator. But I, you know, I, you've been great with your time, but I, I did want to ask one more question, which is, you know, selfishly from a consultant perspective, right? I'm still getting asked about self-service password reset. I, should we be looking for a solution or how do we approach self-service password reset? To me, it seems like the answer ought to be, why even why if you haven't gotten there yet why go there why not just go right to password list so can password lists um be a substitute for self-service password reset and if so um what are kind of are there trade-offs i mean can it, is it a, is it a good substitute for password self-service password reset yeah i think it's you know we often say, you know, you can't steal a bike if the bike doesn't exist. So if the password doesn't exist, you can't steal it, but they also don't need to reset it anymore. And so it's actually kind of a, a true benefit that often prompts a lot of these organizations is that as much as they built many of these tools to do self-service reset, it still is a major problem for these help desks. So yeah, if you rip that out altogether, you've got nothing left that needs to be reset. So uh, absolutely can change the game. And, and I think part of it is, as we've looked and you, know, you were asking before, it's how we're different. You know, certainly logging on to corporate resources, logging on to consumer resources are all important. You nailed it, Jim. There's been this mindset with, well, with our employees, we can get away with a lot more. We can make it more painful. But 
even that hits a level at some point. But we're seeing it with other things like, you know, we're, we're seeing us being asked to integrate with like the cyber arcs and psychotics and beyond trust of the world for privileged access. So why should we be pulling these things out of a vault with MFA as well if we can truly authenticate that experience? And, and the new area we've been getting into is even with DevOps, that you have developers who are signing code and interacting with these Git repositories all the time, and they do them from accounts. So you have Daffy Duck 123 and you don't know who that is. And obviously with things like supply chain security, and we saw it with the solar winds attack that you want to make sure you know who is signing code and what device they're doing it from. So we have applicability there. But believe me, you want to talk about an environment you don't want to make friction is your developers who are writing code and signing code in. So kind of looking at all these different use case scenarios, the level of user friction is, is a critical component to it. But yeah, let's let's finally stop the calls to the help desk and customer service for forgotten passwords. Or how many times have you gotten something from some service that said, hey, our password database looks like it may have been stolen. We don't know if your stuff has been, but we strongly recommend you change your password. So we create that spiral all over again to something new I have to remember that I'm bound to forget as well. So yeah, the best way of uh, eliminating the problem is truly eliminating the problem. Right. That's a great answer. So, um, Kurt, you've been super generous with your time. We always like to wrap up each episode uh, on the lighter note, right? Talk about something fun. And so we, when we were pre-gaming for this episode, uh, you mentioned you're from Boston. Obviously, that's my favorite, or maybe not so obviously, but that's my favorite donut shop, which is Dunkin' Donuts, right? That's where it started in Boston. And I recommended to Jeff that we could have an entire episode on donuts. And so maybe we will do that at some point in the future. Let me know. I'll be there. <laughs> donut at the center. <laughs> donut at the center. Donut holes. Um, but I'm also, I'm from Augusta, Georgia, right? That's the epicenter of golf, I think, of the golf world. And at least once once a year it is. And um, you mentioned that you're an avid golfer. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what is the best part of your golf game and what's the worst part of your golf game? What, what, what gives you hope that what, what keeps you coming back to the course? And then what is it that tells you you're never going to be a scratch golfer? <laughs> the, the greatest thing about golf is even when you're doing terrible all day long, you have that one great drive and it just gives you confidence. You can come back and I think through working on my game, I've really, my driving has gotten much better and off the tee I'm feeling far more comfortable than ever before and it's the old you know drive for show putt for dough I can't putt for anything to save my life and I and I watch these pros analyze these greens and squatting down and yeah I'm out there squatting down staring at them and don't have a freaking clue what they're actually going to do and I'm like why did my putt go that way and it really started looking into it and just uh you know the worst thing you can do for your golf game is go to a startup because there's nothing you need to do than play more and a startup doesn't really help you on on doing more of that but i just realized how many strokes i'm spending on the green and three putting that it's why i don't and but i'll go back to the range and just start hitting long balls again and feeling really good about myself so it gives me the confidence that hey i can do this but then when you really get down to it. Yeah, that's that's where when you look at the pros and just that big, huge book they're carrying in their back pocket, I could never imagine having one of those, but you realize the, and that's what I love about the game, right? It's it's out there, love the environment, been to Augusta, which is like probably one of the greatest places I've ever been to at Augusta National to, to see it and how beautiful it is. You're outdoors, you're interacting, having uh, good communication and good time with friends. Um, and even the frustration parts, you can kind of get past again. But yeah, if I could learn how to putt and just save so many of those strokes, I think I could probably do a lot better than just going back to the range and trying to hit bombs. <laughs> how about you, Jeff? Yeah, you know, I was listening to Kurt here and, you know, I was, I was listening along. I was like, yeah, hitting good drives and can't putt. And I immediately thought of Happy Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, you know, that he was the king of the master drive. You know, I, I don't golf anywhere near as much as I used to. Um, and I actually took lessons when I was much younger in my, I guess, mid to late teens. Um, but I would say the strength of my game is the seven iron. Um, that is the club that I can I can nail just about almost every time. Um, I cannot hit a wood or a driver to save my life. 
And it shows because that's where my lessons ended. I learned how to hit irons and we were working our way up to the woods and I stopped taking lessons and I never actually got to, you know, the, the driver, the, you know, the three wood, five wood, et cetera, those sort of things. So I struggle mightily trying to hit any of those clubs. Um, yeah, I'm okay at putting, I guess, you know, not, not perfect at it, but I'm also not looking to be, but give me a seven iron and, and a top golf, uh, afternoon and, and I'm all over it. <laughs> What I love is that combination of physical and thinking. There's a lot of thinking in it, but you talk about the lessons. It's incredible how much different advice you can get that you could just drive yourself crazy, that these little tiny nuances can completely mess up something that worked really well in the past. So yeah, I'm always debating, do I go take another lesson? But I do my best to try to stay away from YouTube because I just learned too many different things that never seem to work. <laughs> a lot of conflicting ideas. Jim, what about you? What about your, your golf game? Well, a lot of what Kurt was saying was resonating with me. Um, but I I think I two thoughts with everything was one, top golf I really enjoy. I think that's a fantastic time and you know, drinking beer while you're golfing to me is just that's the way to do it. Uh the second thing, just talking about um Augusta National and professional golf in general made me think back to the mess of humanity following Tiger Woods as he went from hole to hole. And whatever you think of Tiger Woods, right? The the guy was the best golfer that I ever saw play. I mean, you know, the way he could perform in the clutch was just unbelievable. And I think that takes a special, rare individual who can have all the pressure in the world to you have to perform right now and to be able to do it. It's almost like podcasting. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. Uh, yeah. Well, I feel I'm working with the Tiger Woods of podcasting here with the two of you. So, <laughs> uh, Flattery will get you everywhere. So thank you very much. I think that's like actually an excellent spot where we can leave it for this week. Um, before we go, any final thoughts, Kurt, for folks who are listening out there and, you know, they're, they're interested in passwordless, you know, what are some, some key takeaways that they should take away from this conversation? Yeah, I, I think really looking at it from the notion, as we were talking about before, passwordless versus password dashless. Let's get the herd immunity. Let's truly look to eliminate these and frustrate the phishing, frustrate the credential stuffing attackers by really eliminating that threat. But yeah, I'm a big believer in the, in the notion of zero trust. We need to know the identity, the device, the network, the location, the behavior, but let's pull two of those, identity and device together, bring those signals at the point of authentication, and then the rest of the risk signals we can look at from a true behavioral analytics to kind of assess risk. I think we're moving in the right direction. And the bottom line, authentication no longer can be the bouncer letting you in or keeping you out. It needs to be continuous. And taking a look at these signals on an ongoing basis is the only way of really truly reducing the risk out there. It's okay to get smarter. And uh, password list is a way to get smarter. So uh, good thoughts there. Jim, how about yourself for this week? I mean, it's it's what I talked about earlier with the uh, companies being compromised, credentials being sold for $1,000. It just shows you the, 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 massive, the massive scale at which this is being done. Pastor has to die. It's the only way that these credentials are being sold for $1,000 is that it's the simple, same old stuff of people reusing passwords or uh, using common passwords. You've got to, it's just an insufficient control for your organization. So um, multi-factor authentication is step one. Getting rid of the password is step two. And if you can go right to step two, all the better for you. Multi-factor, one of those doesn't have to be a password. So let's like get away from thinking that it has to be password plus something better. Let's get the password out of the equation. You can still have multi-factor, but you don't need a password to be one of them. That's a great point, right? Password is, is not part of the MFA definition. Right? It's just something else. <laughs> so that's a good one to go. Uh, that's a good way to end on. So um, why don't we go ahead and leave it there? Um, if, if you'd like to learn more about Beyond Identity, you can find them on the web at beyondidentity.com. If you want to learn more about us on the podcast itself, uh, visit our spanky new website that's been redesigned and updated with all of our fancy new logos, identityatthecenter.com. And you can also hit us up on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. 
I'll have some links to uh, all of our LinkedIn information in the show notes, as well as a link to uh, that article on dark reading that Jim had mentioned about uh, how cheap, relatively, $1,000 for a compromised uh, company to, to get their passwords. Uh, please do not use that for bad things. $1,000 in Bitcoin is like, you know, 0. 0.0003. <laughs> right now and it just changed again and it just changed again and stop trying to follow it <laughs> all right we're gonna go ahead and leave it appreciate everyone's time this week thanks so much for joining us kurt jim thanks as as always and uh for folks who are listening thanks for listening uh please like subscribe rate share whatever it is share it with a friend share it with an enemy don't care as long as it gets shared uh get out there with uh, folks and uh we'll talk with everyone in the next one Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.